Hello and welcome to As My Whimsy Takes Me. I'm Sharon Shu, And I'm Karis Ellison. And we're so thankful to everyone for still being here listening to us and for welcoming us back after our <laughs> unplanned hiatus that we <clears throat> came sneaking back from, uh, wondering if there would still be anyone listening. And like so, so many people were excited to have us back and it was really, I was, I was really touched. It was really, really sweet. Um, and we're really grateful. Yeah, it, it was so wonderful to hear that we hadn't just been dropped from everybody's <laughs> podcast subscriptions um, and to see some, you know, familiar names interacting with us on, on our different channels and um, thank you to everybody who's already signed up for the Patreon, which yeah, is incredible. That's amazing. We're so grateful. It's, I mean, truly just like the kick of dopamine that my brain <laughs> needed sliding into the end of this year. Yeah. The the fact that anyone, like, I was just like, maybe a couple of people will sign up, but the fact that people signed up and like signed up immediately and it's so appreciated and it is going to do a lot to help us kind of like cover the expenses of the podcast and that you know, like that's just a weight off our minds and we are really appreciative. Yeah, we're really grateful. And it we're definitely thinking of what other extras we can we can offer. Um if you sign up at the twenty dollar a month level, Karis has promised to sing every verse of Ilkla Morbitat to you, which um, you know, depending on your disposition may or may not feel like a reward. <laughs> But Karis has a lovely singing voice, so... If you don't want to hear it for yourself, you can't always get it for someone else as a punishment. Oh, you could send it as a prank. I like that. <laughs> um, and we'll also do uh, open threads for members post-episode to discuss. Um, and Karis and I were also just chatting before we started recording that um, if it's something that people would be interested in, we could also offer as... Uh, a reward um, book recommendations from the two of us. We both work publishing adjacent and read a lot of books. So if you want to, you know, tell us, give us a wacky prompt or say, I love, you know, these three books suggest something like it, or just hear what we've been reading and loving lately, uh, we can make that happen somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, we do love to talk about books in general. Like <laughs> we started the Patreon, not quite sure what to offer as. Uh, rewards. So definitely let us know if there are things that y'all would be just interested in, kind of like in addition to the regular podcast and to the the bloopers that we we know that we can offer because we have so many. <laughs> but yeah, so let's jump back in to have his carcass. Yeah, and this book, our last yeah. episode on this book. Yeah, and we've we've got a lot of ground to to cover. Yes. Uh, you know, like we left off last time with. Peter and Harriet uh, dancing in harmony. So we thought that we'd jump in this time into them having a slightly less harmonious <laughs> interaction. <laughs> Do you want to give us like a super brief summary of like where we are at this point? Yes. So the lead in of this scene, it's chapter 13, Evidence of Trouble Somewhere. And Peter and Harriet are basically running through their list of suspects and persons of interest thus far. At least for a reader like me, it's very, very helpful. They make a list. So helpful. Um, so helpful. And it's, you know, it's comes, it comes just sort of before the halfway point of the book. Um, but again, as we've been saying, there's, there's so much plot and there's so many details to keep track of. So yeah. like in our first episodes, I know that we covered barely any of the book because we were so bogged down and just we're explaining like, the intricacies. Happened. Yeah. And then this. Yeah. So so it's really great to just get a, a clear numbered list, um, things to be noted, things to be done about each person. Mm -hmm. And I always really love that there's also this like sort of Peter Harriet marginalia yes. um, annotations. I really can't imagine. Like they're sitting there together at a table and they are essentially flirting by text <laughs> like by writing notes to each other in the margins it's so cute <laughs> yeah so i really love that the book sort of gives gives us this list almost as a as a found object um as a textual object and yeah, yeah and i like peter's little note um things to be done about henry weldon kick him <laughs> <laughs> 
And Harriet writes, well, no, that wouldn't be politics. String him along and see if he really is as stupid as he makes out. And then Peter notes, all right, but kick him afterwards. (laughs) So those are just really, really cute. But basically, they get to the end of all of these persons of interest. And then Harriet adds one more name to the list. She says, have you considered this? She scribbled for a moment. And she writes her own name of Harriet Vane, obviously noting down once tried for murder of her lover, acquitted by the skin of her teeth, found Paul Alexis dead, took three hours to walk four and a half miles and form the police, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and Peter does not like this. Yeah, well, like she does also, you know, she she points out that the police suspected her and that they've searched her room. And what is he doesn't care for that? He that up, upsets him. And she's whereas Harry has a much more practical view of like they couldn't very well do anything else. You know, no, they like, wouldn't be doing their jobs if they didn't. Yeah, of course, of course, they have to suspect me. Of course, they have to look into me. And Peter, you know, says that he's going to say something to Uncle T. Um, and Harriet says, no, you can spare me that. And he says, but it's absurd. And Harriet says, it is not. Do you think I have no wits? Do you think I don't know why you came galloping down here at five minutes notice? Of course, it's very nice of you and I ought to be grateful. But do you think I like it? And... You know, we, we when we were kind of like running through what we wanted to say in this episode, we were pointing out to each other that this is the turning point of Peter and Harriet's relationship, right? Because it's up to this point, it's been Harriet having complicated feelings about Peter and his role in her her trial, the fact that he essentially saved her life and not just like her life, but also as far as it could be saved her reputation. And he's like kind of like through that also been the instrument of her own like fortunes in life, like improving, you know, because her, her books are selling because, you know, her name is now like coupled with his in the media. So like she's gotten this huge boost of publicity, you know, partly from notoriety because she was tried for murder, but also because he's a very public figure. So there's a lot of windfall in her life just from being associated with him. And as someone who, has been making her own way in life like that's not very comfortable <laughs> like what do you do with that yeah yeah and like especially when he like on meeting her proposed marriage you know like that's there's just no way to not have complicated feelings about that and so like harriet has been in this weird position of like she doesn't dislike peter but he represents a lot of things that she doesn't like uh, maybe less about like the world in general but about herself and about her own circumstances and and experiences and then peter obviously is in a super difficult position of loving someone who has all these complicated feelings and walking on eggshells trying to have any kind of relationship with her without making it worse Mm -hmm. um you know like it's like when harriet says that about you know i ought to be grateful but how do you think i feel and it says that peter with a grave face like he gets up and walks away to the window and it's like you just like imagine him like the devastation yeah and he's been i mean i think you know picking up on what you said about how careful he's been trying to be with her psychological state later on in the same argument he says um you know i don't want gratitude i don't want kindness i don't want sentimentality i don't even want love i could make you give me that of a sort i want common honesty so it's it's really interesting because i think They've been, both of them, aware, they have this shared, unspoken awareness of how much power he brings into this mm-hmm. relationship and how uneven it is because of his wealth and his title and the fact that he saved his life. But also, I think there's an unevenness in their past sort of relationship experience, right? The fact mm-hmm. It's so telling to me that he says, I could make you love me if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and it's, you really see the restraint in him that he's... Yeah cognizant enough of himself and of her that he's like i'm not gonna exercise that power um but you just yeah poor peter (laughs) you think about how how patient he's been trying to be and and not holding that patience over her head and then also just the poor the, the bind that harriet's in where she's also aware again i mean at the end of strong poison right where she says like well i'll be your mistress but i won't marry you um like oh, these two people are just in this horrible, they've just been circling this problem for so long. And I was I was saying to you when we were getting ready to record, I always 
I think because I've reread these books so much, I always forget that this is kind of the first time that they actually air out the problem. And so I always hit the scene and I'm like, oh, right. Like we know as rereaders that this is everything that they're feeling, but it's really the first time that they say it out loud to each other yeah. and are able to, to deal with it. But it's just, oh, I, it, it always just makes me so sad when I get to this point. Yeah. And it's so like the intensity of like everything that they say, like we could sit here and read through this whole scene because it's, that's the best way to convey how intense it is. Because I think like, one of the things that we love about Sayers is how well she writes dialogue, right? And how well she communicates character and dialogue. And the way that they talk to each other, the the passion that comes out is so, ah, this is, like, this is a wonderful scene. And, like, I'm looking right now at the dialogue where Harriet is talking about that, that she was brazen to get publicity out of having found a dead body. And that, you know, like, she can't hide her name because... That's her, you know, that's what she lives by. But does it make it any more agreeable to know that it's only the patronage of Lord Peter Whimsey that prevents the police from being openly hostile? Mm. And Whimsey says, I have been afraid of this. And so she says, then why did you come so that you might not have to send for me? And <laughs> just, <sighs> I have a big ouch written next to that part. Like, I don't know from which reread, but just, oh. <laughs> Especially when you think back to that, wonderful scene when Peter first arrives and he is just being so lighthearted and amusing and funny and just like making the whole thing into a bit of a joke and like he just the the fact that he knew that she would need him and that she wouldn't that she wouldn't want to have to send for him yeah. And that it would set them back even more if she had to send for him. Yeah. yeah, set them back so far if she had had to send for him and that it was better for him to just show up. And then, you know, like it goes on to kind of, we kind of get this flashback where Peter got the news from Hardy, you know, at the newspaper that Hardy called him up and describes it as his furious and terrified eruption into Fleet Street and the violent bullying of a repentant and sentimental Hardy. So the Morning Star report was hammered into a form that set the tone for the comments of the press. So like he's done this like protecting her behind the scenes thing, which like obviously he would never want her to know about. Mm -hmm. And it's I think it's important that it's it's not because he thinks that she can't handle herself mm -hmm. or that she's not intelligent. It's just he understands the circumstances yeah. where the press and the police would be looking at her and you know, probably with a, a form of glee to mm -hmm. to drag her back into, um, to drag her notoriety back into all of this. Yeah. So it's, it's a protection of, like, it's not out of some misplaced chivalry of like, oh, she can't handle herself without me, or she can't do this without me. But yeah, but I think it, he's, and, and it, like, it's also like, it would have been very easy for her to be condemned by the public with, you know, with Noah investigation, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's so easy to assume guilt and especially in this like weird circumstance yeah <laughs> like, yeah he's trying so hard he's trying so hard and then like how do i say this without like just reading the whole the whole page <laughs> it's so good this podcast is just an audiobook now <laughs> but yeah when he decides like to brazen it out as harriet said even if it meant making a public exhibition of his feelings and the annihilation of all the delicate structure of confidence which he had been so cautiously toiling to build up between the scathed and embittered woman and himself. He said nothing but watched the wreck of his fortune in Harriet's stormy eyes. <sighs> I've basically underlined this entire scene. <laughs> right. Like I'm I'm looking at the ebook copy and I have this whole thing as highlighted. <laughs> yeah. And then like right after that, it sort of jumps to Harriet's point of view. Just her inner workings. I'm just gonna have to read this. Um Harriet, meanwhile, having worked herself up into committing an act of what she obscurely felt to be injustice, was seized by an unreasonable hatred against the injured party. The fact that, until five minutes earlier, she had felt perfectly happy and at ease with this man. Before she had placed both him and herself in an intolerable position, she felt somehow as one more added to the list of his offenses. She looked around for something really savage to do to him, and then she kind of goes into um, a, a bit of a rant about you know, how humiliating it is and, and you think you're being so noble and generous. But it's like, I just, Sayers' understanding of 
the human psyche. I mean, I have, mm. I have been there in arguments with like romantic partners or, or friends where that, that impulse, right. Of mm-hmm. like, I'm going to say the unforgivable thing. Yeah. Um, because I just want to hurt this other person as much as I have felt hurt. Like, yeah. I think that is such a, a universally human sensibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and to see it just kind of laid out here where she takes us step by step through, you know, Harriet was feeling so at ease and then this and then this. And, and she, yeah. she'd forced, she kind of forced the confrontation, but now she's, she's, you know, really it's, she's angry at herself. Mm-hmm. for doing so and lashing out and and angry at the situation and yeah it's like in gaudy night you know we'll encounter another person who kind of feels that same way of having to be grateful to people and says something about like i hate feeling grateful it makes me want to bite <laughs> yeah um it's just like oh yeah it's so yeah it's it's so difficult to feel like you owe things to people you know or that People have had to take care of you when you think that you should have been able to do it yourself. And it, and it's uh, it's not something that I feel like people talk about a lot, you know, or I, I like I, I don't know if I can think of any other examples where anyone has handled it as well as Sayers does, because the like the more you feel it, the guiltier you feel about it. Right. Because you're just like, oh, I'm not feeling the way I'm supposed to feel. And it's just like, well, thank you, but also, I appreciate it, but I never want to see your face again. <laughs> right, right. Like, it's easy to be the magnanimous person. It's harder to yeah. be the, the poor relation. I, you know, as you were saying that, it it made me think about how much dark academia has, you know, sort of reemerged as a trend in publishing and, and reading. And it's so funny because I always, you know, every book gets pitched as like, the secret history meets blah, blah, blah. And it's so rarely, I, I always read these books and I'm like, but it's not the secret history. And I th- I think, I think often what these, I'm not going to say imitators, because I, I think that's rude <laughs> to these writers, but like what these other books um, that come in that tradition maybe miss is they, they're really good about picking up on the part of like, oh, this outsider gets pulled into kind of an elite, very wealthy, very exclusive clique. And those shenanigans. But I, I think what the secret history does so well is it really gives you a sense of that protagonist's financial precarity in a way that a lot of these subsequent books, I think, don't quite hit on. And how that precarity, there's a certain kind of gratitude or like, I can't believe my luck when the person is pulled into the clique. But there's also a class resentment. There's a almost, you know, both a judgment and a of of these people who have it so much more comfortable and a desire for those things. But I think also a, a discomfort, a kind of resentment, I think of being made to feel inferior or being made to feel outside that I think it's really easy to skip over when you're crafting a book. That's just like, Ooh, these secret societies and these parties and this, you know, sort of conspicuous consumption. And, but I think that's really one of the keys to why, at least for me, the secret history has such a, a frisson that a lot of these other books don't. But what you were saying about very few pieces of literature um, that we can think of really pick up on this particular dynamic. And it's and it's really fascinating, I think, to see it in a romantic context, like in this book, because, again, I mean, so much of the Victorian marriage plot novel and modern day romance novels, it's all about like, yeah, marrying the Duke and <laughs> marrying Mr. Darcy, who's so wealthy and, and all your problems get solved. And Sayers really digs into the like, what happens when two people come into a relationship on such unequal footing? Like it's, you're going to have some blow ups like this one, because how could you not? Yeah. And like the fact that Whimsy knows it, though, you know, Mm -hmm. he says is like, don't you think that I know that I'd have a better chance if you could have the fun of being magnanimous? And he says, do you suppose I treat my own sincerest feelings like something out of a comic opera? If it isn't to save myself the bitter humiliation of seeing you try not to be utterly nauseated by them. <laughs> oh, Peter. Mm-hmm. Like, he fully understands what a difficult position that she's in. And he's just like, I know. I want to read this part um, because I think it'll be important once we get into Gaudy Night. So this is right after he says, you know, I could make you love me. But I don't want that. I just want common honesty. Harriet responds, do you? But that's what I've always wanted. I don't think it's to be got. Peter says, listen, Harriet, I do understand. I know you don't want either to give or to take. You've tried being the giver 
and you found that the giver is always fooled. And you won't be the taker because that's very difficult because you know that the taker always ends up hating the giver. You don't want ever again to have to depend for happiness on another person. And I think that's, I mean, he's referring directly to that relationship with Philip Boys, right? Where Boys was really demanding that Harriet Hero worship him and she gave up her reputation. She gave up her friendships. She probably felt a little bit like she was giving up her career because, you know, we've all met the Philip Boys type, right? He was like, I'm writing literature and you're writing silly detective novels. And so it's just coming back. Yeah, like Peter understands that dynamic. And I think it's really interesting that he's also saying like the taker always ends up hating the giver. Like he's like, I understand that this isn't what you want. And he's, you know, he's also saying like, I don't want this either. Um, but that's why they find themselves at such an impasse. Yeah. And then he kind of calls her out, right? You have to, I can, I can respect that you feel this way, but you like, don't force an emotional situation and then blame me for it. Right. And the fact that what they both want is honesty and that this is the first time they've been able to be honest with each other. Like the, I feel like this conversation opens a door between them. But then also, like Harriet in particular has backed herself into a corner where she doesn't know where to go from here. And like she tells him that she doesn't want to be in any situation. I want to be left in peace. He says, but you're not a peaceful person. You'll always make trouble. Yeah. Why not fight it out on equal terms and enjoy it? Yeah. And this will really, I mean, this comes up in Busman's honeymoon, right? Like this is, we will see them kind of revisit versions of this conversation, I think, in, in less fraught circumstances. Um, but it's really, yeah, it's it's the crux of the problem of why they can't be together right now. And yeah, again, so excited to get to Gaudy Night where Harriet starts working out, is it possible to be neither giver nor taker? Is it possible to be equals? And I think at least in this book, she's being presented with relationship after relationship that says no, right? Yeah. Like this this pantomime of romance that Wilfercombe offers them. There's there's nothing for them here. Yeah. You know, like we're kind of skimming over, we're not planning to kind of go into like Leela Garland, who is Alexis's former mistress. Um, but like, that's a relationship where she's a bit of a gold digger. And like, she's having a relationship with someone who can kind of like take care of her and give her presents. And so, you know, so like that's a give or take a relationship. And then like Paul Alexis and... Uh, Mrs. Weldon was a give or take a relationship, which which kudos to Paul Alexis. He did try and bring a little bit of balance to, you know, like he didn't uh, accept a lot of money from her, even though he was planning to like marry her for her money. But he wasn't like draining her in the meantime. So, you know, but like that was another like contractual relationship where it's just like he was performing romance for Mrs. Weldon in exchange for financial a future of financial security and like we see that playing out with Antoine the other dancer who who talks to Harriet about those kinds of relationships and we kind of get a hint that he's kind of picking up where Paul Alexis left off with Mrs. Weldon at the very end we see Henry Weldon kind of like suggesting that Harriet might be interested in that some kind of contractual relationship with him because he's gross like that <laughs> Yeah, but over and over and over again, it's these relationships like where everyone is performing romance, everyone is performing gender to, you know, like different extremes. Yeah, performing virtue as well, right? Lila Garland keeps insisting she's not a girl like that, even though she's, she's like trying so hard to get Peter up to her room by herself. Um, yeah, the idea of, of both Peter and Harriet just like craving emotional honesty so much. Why, like against this backdrop of all these petty dramas and less petty dramas because it's once you murder someone it's not quite so petty but <laughs> just like the soap opera in earlier episodes we talked about Harriet's very first observations when she gets to the hotel and she like sees the, the play acting that goes on and it's the the contrast I think is so interesting and it's It'll be interesting to kind of like revisit this when once we're in Gaudy Night because it's such a different environment. Because I think that Sayers sees Oxford as a place of like deep essential honesty because people are there looking for academic truth. And it's a very different backdrop for Peter and Harriet to be having that, uh, to be looking for that in each other. And they, mm -hmm. you know, like Harriet's able to respond in a very different way. But for right now, 
<laughs> well, and and going back to genre, they're operating in a totally different genre. In, yeah. In Gotting Night, right here, they're 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 the little bit of the realist novel, um, set against this very yeah the the Ruritanian romance is very heightened. I think soap opera is the perfect word for it. Yeah, which I, I right at the end of this conversation, which neither of them know how to get out of right like mm-hmm. <laughs> they've gotten themselves in a tangle and then right at the end harriet says that it sounds dreary and exhausting and starts like bursts into tears and <laughs> peter like flings himself on his knees just like oh no <laughs> call me anything you like but not dreary not one of those things you find in clubs <laughs> but it, and, and it's so funny i love the like little line out here it's like have this one darling it's much larger and quite clean you know like Sarah's does that thing where she doesn't like describe an action, but it's there in the dialogue. So it's like, oh, yes, he's giving her a handkerchief. And it's so funny that he's like in the middle of this like dramatic and he's like, oh, and here, have this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he sort of reverts to silly ass a little bit. Yeah. Um, Or he, you know, sort of, yeah, say you don't, didn't mean it. Great Scott, have I been boring you interminably (laughs) for 18 months on end? A thing any right minded woman would shudder at. So it's, I mean, I think he also kind of knows like, okay, we've had out our our big emotional clearing of the air, and now we need to actually back away a little bit from, like, this precipice of honesty, maybe. But they are, they're rescued by the telephone ring. And I love that, you know, like, Harriet gets up to answer it, and she says, "Some it's it's you, somebody wants you over at the Bellevue. Let him want. <laughs> and someone come and answered at the thing in the Morning Star, you know? And so, like, the moment Peter knows that it's about the investigation, he's like, you shot across the room and snatched the receiver. You know, like, this is when they've been, you know, they've been working on tracking down the history of the Razor. And William Bright has shown up to give this, like, long involved history of, like, purchasing it and then meeting Paul Alexis and selling it to him. But he gets the he gets the call that Bright is is there to meet him. And he it says he bolted out of, like a cat. But here's the cry of meat, meat. <laughs> <laughs> It's just like he goes at like the switching of gears is so funny. It's like Sayers knew that we needed a backing away too. Yeah. <laughs> like, let me give you some comic relief here. Yeah. Well, and I love the echo of, you know, what we talked about last time where on the dance floor where Harriet was like all prepped for them to have this moment. And then Peter is just thinking about the mystery. And then they're like in the depths of this like emotional discussion. And it's like, oh, the mystery. <laughs> <laughs> that you know, like, interaction that they have on the dance floor, and then that, like, kind of, like, argument, like, those turning points of their relationship, I think, are so, like, well done. They're just, like, as hard of a time as we have had getting through this book, it's still (laughs) very close to being my favorite book Mm -hmm. out of all the whimsy books. Like, Half His Carcass and Gaudy Night and Westman's Honeymoon are my favorites, and it tends to be whichever one I've read most recently is my most favorite. Um, but you know, but like have his carcass is right up there. And I think it's because it has these just like absolute perfect gems of moments like this. <sighs> Truly perfect. Like no notes, chef's kiss. Yeah. Um, and again, her, her efficiency. This yeah. Was, this was half of one chapter, you know, and the dancing scene, it's one scene and she's able to do so much psychological work in the characters and to move their relationship forward right like i'm i'm not of the school of thought that every every incident in a in a novel has to be an inciting incident or like has to move the plot forward because yeah i don't know again i I was a modernist right like i'm like (laughs) ah plot what plot um but like i i i just think it's i'm always in awe of sayers when i when i hit on one of these scenes where it's like working on so many different levels and it never feels um it just never feels dragged it just it just always feels like yeah it's she found the most efficient way to do the thing that she needed to do Mm -hmm. um to have this relationship progress while the case is also progressing it's just great though does the case progress (laughs) (laughs) um well you know and like it's funny that uh peter and harriet like they have that fraught scene and then they go on to like, they both go on to like do more investigating, you know, like Peter goes off and interviews Bright, uh, Harriet uh, gets a hold of um, Antoine and uh, goes to talk to like Leela Garland and 
uh, her new boyfriend DeSoto. And so like they've both gone and like done investigating and like gotten more information and then they meet again and they're both like, you know, it's like you wouldn't think that they had had a, let's see what it says. Um, if either Harriet Vane or Lord Peter Whimsey felt any embarrassment at meeting again after their burst of free speech, they did not show it. Both had a story to tell and thus were spared the awkwardness of being grappled for lack of matter. Love it. Yeah. So like they, they meet again um, because they've got this plan to like walk the beach for <laughs> yeah. looking for clues. Um, Beachcomb in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and I, I do love that they, I think this points to the fact that they are intellectual equals, mm-hmm. right? And that both of them are, are, have a kind of, it's not even professionalism. I think it's a, it's an integrity of there's yeah. this larger thing going on that we're investigating and they're so eager to talk to each other about it so that it's like, okay, you know, we had that blow up. We don't need to, let's just put that on the shelf for now because like, yeah. I have so much to tell you. And yeah, I, that's a really cool thing to see. I think, mm-hmm. you know, and then we like, we get this very entertaining interlude where like their walk along the beach is told in script form <laughs> rather resembled the dialogue of a Russian tragedy. <laughs> and then they eventually find a horseshoe and Harriet goes, Peter, were you looking for a horseshoe? <laughs> Oh, we've got to read this. Yes. We have to read this. This is one of my best, the, my favorite lines. Um, so Peter responds, no, I was expecting the horse, but the shoe is a piece of pure gorgeous luck. And Harry says, and observation, I found it. <laughs> and Peter <laughs> says, you did. And I could kiss you for it. You need not shrink and tremble. I'm not going to do it. When I kiss you, it will be an important event. One of those things which stand out among their surroundings, like the first time you tasted lychee. <laughs> It will not be an unimportant sideshow attached to a detective investigation, <laughs> which I just, if you know what is coming, you will giggle a little bit. But I, again, he's sort of reverting back to silly ass a, a tiny bit. Um, yeah. But I just, I, oh, I just love their banter. It's yeah. so good. <laughs> and then Harriet responds, I think you are a little intoxicated by the excitement of the discovery, said Harriet coldly. I do love right under that when he says, you say you came here looking for a horse, and he's like, naturally, didn't you? And Harriet says, no, I never thought about it. And Peter says, you miserable little cockney. <laughs> no, you never thought of a horse, except as something that holds up the traffic. Wretched girl, wait till we are married. You shall fall off a horse every day till you learn to sit on it. And then Harriet was silent. But, oh, Harriet, oh, girl. <laughs> girl, you in danger. <laughs> there are a few like very slow times kind of like building up like from here and through Gotti Night where we see Harriet becoming aware of Peter as something more than this like object of gratitude and she becomes aware of him as a man yeah yeah like whereas <laughs> like I think before she kind of sees him as like representing this like worst moment of mm-hmm. her life or like just a brain too yeah right? There's an earlier scene where they're investigating the rock and he goes into the water and she was just like, oh, like he strips better than I would have expected and actually has calves to his legs. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like that observation's like much more detached and interested, whereas this is like she has this moment of like, oh, you know, I think I think it's also important that Harriet, we see this moment where she I think it's safe to say that she's sort of repressed a lot of her own her own ability to experience physical desire or sexual desire and so i think yeah these key moments where we see her kind of come into her own body and recognize that she does have a physical response to peter and then just kind of accept it right like it's it is telling here she doesn't create another scene or sort of we've seen her in the past kind of judge herself when she allows herself to feel any kind of like positive emotion towards peter so I think, yeah, it's just kind of cool to see her have this like very, very fraught, charged moment inside of herself. And then, you know, on, on they go with the investigation to actually find the horse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which they do find the horse um, up up the lane, um, the lane, which is where Mr. Martin was camping. Bunter has met them there with the car and um, provided uh, a paper bag of oats and a halter. And uh, we get this fun little scene where... Like Peter goes and interacts with the horse and is feeding them oats out of his hat. <laughs> Basically, Peter was looking for the horse because he's mm-hmm. like, this is the one way that somebody could have approached the rock, riding in the surf, riding away mm-hmm. without leaving footprints. And for the, I think the timings to work out in the 
the kind of impossibility of the alibis right now. We could go on and like summarize a lot more about that, <laughs> you know, but but there, let's not let's not. But again, not worth going all the way into. But yeah, because uh, we could we could spend <laughs> a lot of time outlining. It's so convoluted. Yeah, and then the body is found, which adds even more convolutions of. Wait, was it really Bolsheviks? Karis, <laughs> do you want to do you want to tell the listeners uh, just like a brief sketch there? Yeah, um, they eventually do find the the body of Paul Alexis, which uh, still has three hundred pounds in gold on his person, uh, which is why they couldn't find the body. As Peter had it, like he's just like I know why they can't find the body, and but then he didn't say he's just like figure it out for yourself. I think is what he he tells Harriet, but he's just like that. Yeah, this is why they can't find the body. Once they do have the body and are able to have the inquest, uh, they also find papers in Paul Alexis's pocket, which, um, because, you know, they were kind of like all in a group together, they were a little bit protected. Um, so there's this weird letter in code, which one of the things that Harriet didn't learn from Leela Garland was that uh, Paul Alexis would get weird letters and have to like decipher them and then spend a long time writing letters back. And so we're in this weird position of being like, was it was it actually Bolsheviks? Because like all along, Mrs. Weldon has been convinced that it's Bolshevik assassins. <laughs> and we're just like, oh, like the Ruritanian romance. It's surely it's not going to be like we have we have the whole uh, inquest kind of here, but we're not going to go deeply into that. Uh, one thing that is interesting, you know, because like Weldon, uh, Henry Weldon has to speak at the inquest. And Peter makes a little note for himself. It says, the man who committed this murder was not a fool. Weldon is a fool. Therefore, Weldon did not commit this murder. <laughs> that appeared to be sound as far as it went. Yeah. Again, Peter being like, there has to have been an intelligence behind all this. And my main suspect is dumb as rocks. So. <laughs> Which, you know, we talked in our last episode about if he had just hit Paul Alexis on the head and pushed him in the ocean. It's like it's like if Henry Weldon had just murdered him, he probably would have gotten away with it. As long as he didn't do it in a way where he was observed, right? Mm -hmm. But because there's all this cloak and dagger theater people drama stuff, they just spent a lot of time manufacturing evidence and manufacturing clues and red herrings. And backtracking over those things and unraveling them is the only reason that there was anything to solve. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I. so we like to watch a lot of um, like competitive cooking shows. <laughs> um, and it's like when people, you know, the classic mistakes are like, you don't use the basket ingredients fully. You don't like finish cooking your protein, but also like you give the judges more than they asked for. You, you try to get too clever, right? Oh, they asked for this one thing, I'm going to make a trio. And my husband always yells at the TV when that happens. He's like, don't give them more to judge you on. Like, you're just, <laughs> you're presenting them with like three things you have to do perfectly. And if you can do it perfectly, more power to you. It'll be very impressive. But like, maybe think about the fact that they gave you 20 minutes to make a puff pastry and like, don't try to get clever. And I, I do feel like I, I just hear Jason in the back of my head, like whenever I get to this part of the book where it's like, don't try to get clever. <laughs> don't give them more rope to hang you with. <laughs> so like, there's a, there's a lot of plot. Um, mm -hmm. There's the, the inquest happens. So like, fortunately we get like another summary of information, <laughs> but the, uh, the papers that they found lead to a new inquiry because they also found a, a photograph uh, that was signed Fiodora, um, and that was published in the newspaper. And so that that leads Peter to um, a young woman who's a model, you know, and like that this was a professional photograph. This is where we finally realize that there's theater people involved, which in like in retrospect makes so so much sense. Peter goes and meets uh, the woman in the photograph, and she doesn't know anything because it was just a you know you know basically the equivalent of a headshot. And so tracing the history of that leads them to a theatrical agents and they end up in this like crowded waiting room <laughs> for Mr. Sullivan, who 
like he's got a secretary who won't let them in. And then Mr. Sullivan sticks his head out because he's been having a devil of a time casting, spots Peter, and he says, I think to his secretary, why the hell didn't you tell me? What do you think I pay you for? Wasting my time. Here you, what's your name? Never been here before, have you? I'm wanting your type. He calls in a different uh, gentleman, like, I've never, did you ever see such a perfect type? You've got the right thing here, my boy. Knock him flat, eh? The nose alone would carry the play for you. <laughs> um, speaking of Peter. So Peter sort of mistakenly... Uh, <laughs> he accidentally auditions. Yeah, he says, Lord Peter paused in the inner doorway, raking the petrified audience right and left with impertinent eyes. I have played lead, he announced, before all the crowned heads of Europe. Off with the mask. The worm has turned. I am Lord Peter Whimsy, the Piccadilly sleuth, hot on the trail of murder. <laughs> he drew the two stout gentlemen into the room and shut the door behind them. That's a good curtain, said somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I love this, like, this interlude. It's so random because so many of the plot threads are so... There's so much, but I, I do love this whole, like the personality of Sullivan, the theatrical agent and the, the personalities, they aren't, they aren't even like fully drawn, but you like, you get the impression of like all these personalities in the waiting room. And I think it's so funny. <laughs> I love the idea of Peter just playing into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as much as we've been going, oh, theater people, like we have to remember that Sayers herself participated in amateur theatrics at Oxford. Yes. yes. Um, so I think there's like a fondness here, too. Um, oh, yeah, there's definitely fondness in the way that these theater people are portrayed. And, you know, you kind of have to wonder, I'm just like, how many people that she knew are secretly <laughs> like in these scenes? So do we come at long last to the, the whodunit and the howdunit? I know we've sort of talked around it a bit yeah you know what i think is funny is that like this point we're only according to this we're at like 60 percent of the book <laughs> because so much of the book especially in these later parts is taken up with unraveling all of the threads that have been set up mm -hmm. just a tremendous amount of untangling which there's only so much that we can that we can cover yeah i think we could go for just straightforwardly who was involved in the murder plot, like what all the personas mapped on to, and then how the timing got so messed up, right? Yeah, because I was just kind of looking at me like, oh gosh, that's a lot of ground to cover. But like, we really can't. We, we cannot devote a whole episode to, to that. No, we can't do it. We can't do it. We will be stuck here forever. Okay, well, then I'm going to ask you a series of rapid fire questions. Okay. Listeners, this is your last chance to turn back if you don't want to hear us unravel as much of the whole tangled plot as, as we're going to attempt to. So, yes, final warning. Okay, Karis. Yes. Who killed Paul Alexis? Henry Weldon. In cahoots with? In cahoots with William Bright, who is not William Bright, and also his wife. Yeah, so it's Mrs. Morecambe and Bright's real name is, is Mr. Morecambe. Yes. So Weldon sets up this whole thing with Mr. and Mrs. Morecambe. Why did he kill Paul Alexis? To prevent Paul Alexis from marrying uh, his mother, Mrs. Weldon. She intended to settle most of her personal fortune on Paul Alexis, but uh, Henry Weldon had kind of like run into the ground. The, the farm that he had inherited, um, he'd already run through the money that he'd inherited from his father. And so he was really counting on his mother's fortune coming to him. And yes. so he didn't care for the idea of it going elsewhere. Turns out we're back in the inheritance plot novel. <laughs> How did he lure Paul Alexis out to the isolated rock? By making, making <laughs> Paul Alexis believe that he was the heir to the Russian throne and that there was a loyal faction prepared to put him on the on on the throne. I wish our listeners could see your face right now. It's so <laughs> It's just so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. And it's just like, oh my goodness. But on the other hand, you know, like I have seen people confidently tell me even more ridiculous things. Mm -hmm. Fully believing yeah. them to be true. So I'm like I on the one hand I'm just like, oh Paul, you idiot. <laughs> How could you possibly believe I mean, on the other hand, how many people did I know growing up in the South who very firmly believed that they had a Cherokee princess as their great-great-grandmother? Spoiler alert, they did not. 
<laughs> okay, and then final rapid fire question. Why did the timings of the when the death happened, uh, which set up the whole problem of they have unbreakable alibis during the supposed time of death, why did that happen? Because Paul Alexis had hemophilia. And so the fact that his blood was liquid when Harriet found him, they made the turns out unfortunate assumption that that meant that he had just been murdered, whereas in fact he had been murdered and the corpse had been lying there for a while, but the blood didn't clot because... It doesn't do that when you have hemophilia. It doesn't do that. And like even during the inquest, it's pointed out uh, as part of the medical evidence that the body was like quite drained of blood, like very unusually drained of blood, like weirdly drained of blood. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And people had mentioned, right, that Paul Alexis was also like he wore a beard because he... He was afraid to shave. Shave. Yeah. And he was always very sort of careful of stairs or falls or things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do remember the very first time that I read Had His Carcass thinking, are we going to get, are we going to get to the end and find out that he had hemophilia and being surprised that that didn't occur to anyone. But I'm also like, was it less known, you know, like, is it, is it a more obscure condition kind of like at the time? Because like, to me, I was just like, it seems a little obvious, but also. Well, that- it, yeah. It's like, if you've watched the princess bride and you read strong poison, <laughs> you, you kind of have a leg up. Right. But yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it must have been somewhat known because people knew that the Russian royal family had it, right? I mean, at this time, it would have certainly been known. Yeah. The one time I've been like, it feels like that should have been like an obvious thing to consider. But I I think that's also where the way that the Bolshevik plot is set up as a red herring really works nicely because it's first brought up as like, oh, Mrs. Weldon is hysterical. She's a very silly woman. She's saying Bolsheviks murdered him. So there's no way it could like any of that could have a basis in reality. And then you get the letters and you're like, wait, maybe. And so I think there's a way in which like coded letters coming from Russia. Yeah, yeah. But like if people had thought if someone had brought up hemophilia, it's I think I think you you are a discerning reader, Karis. <laughs> I don't think I thought of hemophilia the first time I read Have His Carcass because I was so thoroughly led down the track of there's going to be a a practical you know solution to this that has nothing to do with Bolsheviks, which turns out yes. But also, I think I veered so far away from like the Russia connection because I just assumed that all of it was a red herring. And so the fact that this one tiny, teeny, tiny detail that is actually very, very strongly associated with the Russian royal family <laughs> did turn out, in fact, to be the case. But yeah, so that, you know, in a nutshell, that was the mystery that takes so many pages <laughs> to unravel. Yeah, well, it's because they set up all this elaborate misdirection. As we've said several times, just like, wow, if they had made it simpler, they would have gotten away with it because there would have been fewer threads to unravel. But it's like the more they tried to obfuscate, mm-hmm. the more complex they made it. Um, but they're theater people. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the crime, it's the cover up. <laughs> yeah. I will say, I am pleased that Mrs. Walden makes it out of the book alive. You know, we yes. had that whole string of elderly women murdered for their money mm. earlier on in the the Whimsy series. And, you know, we've talked before on why we thought maybe Sayers veered away from that. But I'm always at the end. I mean, you know, you see Antoine is starting to kind of sidle up to her and she's yeah. not going to learn from her mistakes. But I'm like, good for you, Mrs. Weldon. You, you, you go get yourself some, some hot dancer and you're in your declining years and like you you made it out you survived you're the final girl (laughs) you're right you're right um and you know like there's there could be worse fates for antoine mrs Baldwin will always be sincerely attached to to anyone who's prepared to give her a little romance in her life you know like Mm -hmm. could be worse could be worse that's potentially the happiest ending (laughs) could have been worse (laughs) there are worse fates Speaking of, you know, like the ciphered letters, we find out that they have been leading poor Paul Alexis, this whole song and dance, for months and months. Like, I don't know, like a year? A long time. A long time sending him these ciphered letters, getting him sucked into this ridiculous, ridiculous 
plot where they made him think that he's going to be the ruler of, of Russia. But part of it is that, you know, like he has been getting these ciphered letters. And the first time you read Have His Carcass, did you sit down and work out the cipher? I think I already know the answer, but... I did not. I did not. I decidedly did not either. I was just like, they will tell me what it says in a little bit. But I... And we might have told the anecdote already in another episode. Oh, right. Because I think it was when Angela came on to talk about Five Red Herrings. And she she did. Listeners will hopefully remember our friend Angela, uh, who joined us for Five Red Herrings. And very much did get paper and pencil and sit down and try and decipher the letters before going on. Because because Sayers playing fair provides all the things that you need to decipher the letters yourself. Uh, but I didn't bother. No. <laughs> and you've you've listened. I know you've listened to the series a lot on audiobook. Yes. Uh, how? How do they do this part? They skip they skip right over it. There's a little message, or at least I sh- I guess I should specify because I suppose there there may be more than one audiobook. Uh, the audiobooks that I listen to are the ones read by Ian Carmichael. I do love and recommend he does a, a wonderful job reading them. But yeah, there's just a little message where it's just like, so Sayers spends several pages and quite a number of diagrams explaining the cipher, and it's impossible to follow an audio format. And so it's included at the end of the audiobook, uh, but for now we're going to skip ahead. <laughs> for people who are completists, they do have all of the dialogue, but it's just nonsense without the diagrams. So. Yeah, I mean, it would be like in the top row of this grid, the letters, yeah. blah blah blah, right? Like it, yeah, yeah. It, I, I think that was a very wise choice of whoever made that decision. Yeah, and they skip right over it. Yeah, so. Dramatic untanglings, super complex plots, and it all comes down to a son deciding that he deserved his mother's money and knowing a couple of people who also like money um, <laughs> and, and were prepared to help him plan this over-the-top complicated plot. And then right at, right at the end, they, make the, they have the realization about uh, the hemophilia. And everything kind of falls into place then because of the the timeline suddenly makes sense. And then the book ends very, very soon after that. Yeah, because like there's just the the huge lump of exposition and and stuff, like with apologies to our readers who are here for (laughs) the, the mystery part that we're kind of skipping over it because we haven't found a good way to to cover it without just the whole episode being a summary. I do think it's interesting at the end. I mean, you know, Peter is sort of laying this all out for Harriet, but also the inspector, Umpelty. And, you know, Peter's sort of like, yeah, you, if you exhume the body, you're going to find some characteristics of hemophilia. The inspector is sort of like, I don't know if we'll ever be able to get a jury to believe it because it's so complicated. If we prosecute, do you really think we have a hope in Hades? And that's actually when Harriet brings up that Antoine's been putting the moves on Mrs. Weldon, because she says, I'll tell you this, last night, Mrs. Weldon consented to dance with Monsieur Antoine, and Henry didn't like it at all. If you let Henry Weldon and Morcombe loose again, what premium would you take on those two lives, Antoine's and Mrs. Weldon's? There was a silence after the inspector left them. So there is the implication that he's going to arrest these people and not let them do it again. And I think, again, you know, maybe after we wrap the whole series, we can we can do a quick retrospective episode on like, which are the murderers that Whimsy in particular and, and, you know, I guess Harriet turn over and make sure that justice is met and which are the ones where they, um, I mean, they never let anyone go, but we'll see that there are some where Peter's like, go, go do the right thing. I mean, we've already seen, right? Like, you know, in the Bologna club, you know, it's interesting, the symmetry of how mm-hmm. it's two deaths that happen in, in the club. And also like the implication that the club is a place for, um, men of a certain class, men, and the assumption that men of that class have a sense of honor, which in Half His Carcass, there's a lot more weight on income than there is on class. Not that class isn't a huge part of it, right? But um, there's a lot of performance of performance of wealth. You get like the professional dancers and the descriptions of Paul Alexis, where it's like they dress to a certain uh, degree of elegance <laughs> without taste, but you, there's not that sense of there there being honor to appeal to 
in Henry Weldon where the more comes. We get to the end of the book and there is like this, like it says that there was a silence after the inspector left them. You know, like there's this awkward pause. Like Lindsay says, isn't that a damned awful bitter bloody farce? The old fool who wanted a lover and the young fool who wanted an empire. One throat cut and three people hanged. And I meant to look up Death's Just Book for some background on it because they're all of the chapter headings come from it. Mm. And then I didn't. I had good intentions about doing research and then didn't. <laughs> Let's see. What is Death's Just Book? Let's get some background. Death's Just Book or The Fool's Tragedy, a play written by Thomas Lavelle Beddoes in 1850, according to Encyclopedia Britannica, was an example of the florid gothic. The play, okay, this is according to Google Books, um, which I think this just must be back matter. The play follows the story of a group of characters who are all connected to the central figure of the play, the Duke of Milan. The Duke is a cruel and manipulative man who has a dark past and is haunted by the ghosts of his victims. The play explores themes of power, revenge, love, and death as the characters navigate their way through the Duke's twisted world. The language of the play is poetic and complex with many allusions to Shakespeare and other literary works. So, drama people, theater people. Because <laughs> Peter uses the term, he says, King Death has ass's ears with a vengeance. I think that that's an interesting callback to the way that Sayers was using a Death's Just Book to get all of the, the chapter headings. The idea that there's this comedy of errors surrounding the death of Paul Alexis. But also, like, right at the end here, you, you see Peter and Harriet. It's not funny anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not a joke to them. It's a little bit like in... Uh, whose body when Peter like kind of realizes the solution he's just like oh someone's going to be hanged he has that conversation with Charles where he's just like I go along and it's all good fun and then I realize that someone's going to be hurt and I want out they get to the point of like they solve the mystery and they're just like this is awful (laughs) I hate it here let's get the f out of here (laughs) let's let's get out so they they escape the confines of Wolvercombe we are gonna escape the confines of this book and uh, make our way into Murder Must Advertise, which I, I mean, I, I love Murder Must Advertise. And I, I to me, it's the most, um, I think Sayers employs like the, the most modernist techniques. Uh, it's like the most modernist of any of her books to me. So I, I always love that she, like, yeah, she puts together this like convoluted sort of, you know, throwback 19th century plot. And then she's like, no, done with that. <laughs> Off to advertising agency hijinks. <laughs> yeah. So many fun, like, tidbits about Sayers herself and mm-hmm. um, her work in advertising that we'll have a chance to talk about. I, I'm excited for Murder Must Advertise, too. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I think she she was really trying to get to nine tailors at that point, and she was like, the publisher wants a different book. So I guess I guess I'll dash off something quick about advertising since I know all about it. Um, I did find after you know after she'd sent her publisher that letter I mentioned last time about you know I'm working on something new. It won't be as complicated as five red herrings. She'd later on I think when she was in the thick of writing the book um, in a letter to her cousin Ivy Shrimpton who was also the adoptive mother of, of her, her illegitimate son. Um, she says, I'm struggling with another book, have his carcass, horribly complicated, <laughs> but it must be done under contract so there's nothing for it but to wire in and work it out. And so I think maybe even Sayers herself, you know, thought it would be a, a casual seaside jaunt. And then, <laughs> and then it got more and more tangled as she yeah. went along. <laughs> she can't help herself. She really can't. She, it's a, running joke with my family that I overcomplicate everything and make everything harder than it has to be. And I think that Sayers had uh, some of that tendency as well. Let us thank our Patreon patrons who have joined us uh, since last episode at the $5 tier or higher. So thank you to Rose O. I think it's Yan L. If we say your name incorrectly, let us know and we will do it again as many yes, times as yes, necessary. Yes, we will correct ourselves. I will never live down Urquhart and I really don't want to do that to any of our, our yeah. darling patrons. So, okay. Yeah. Thank you to Jan. Thank you to Casey F, Jesse S, Sarah C, Catherine S, that's Catherine with a K, and Kendra C. We're really, really appreciative of, of all of you and we'll... Uh, get our extras to you soon 
And if you would like to join these lovely folks at one of our membership tiers, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash asmywhimsytakesme. For more episodes and show notes, you can find us online at asmywhimsytakesme.com. That's whimsy spelled W-I-M-S-E-Y. We are on the website formerly known as Twitter as at whimsypod, as well as on Instagram and Tumblr. Our logo is by Gabby Vicioso, and our theme music was composed and recorded by Sarah Mahalik. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and five-star review on Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. Join us next time for more Talking Piffle. Amazing.